Hello, Peter. Hi, James. Welcome back. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> Finally, I'm the one who's welcomed back. <laughs> and ironically, we're in your place. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, a new setting. Hopefully, it's not too echoey or anything, but mm-hmm. it should be chilled. Cool. Um, yeah, so podcast episode number eight. Yeah. Zero to one is the book we're looking at. Yeah. I always want to just, because of the, the way that the cover page is, I always want to be like, it's just, Zero to One by Peter Thiel, mm-hmm. but it's actually Peter Thiel and Blake Masters. <laughs> so, with think, Blake Masters. With, with him. <laughs> I think the story was something like he Blake Masters was like his student, student yes, and then correct. Peter was teaching the course, mm-hmm. and then Blake was taking some notes, and then... He made a good summary of the notes and was distributing them, I think. Exactly, to some yeah. extent. And yeah. then him and Thiel, or he, I don't know if he approached Thiel, I think he approached Thiel or something like that, and then they ended up... Um, putting together the putting book. Putting together the book, yeah. yeah. So cool. Okay, so let's give a, a summary. I don't know if you want to give a summary or no. You go want. for it. Okay. So, um, yeah, zero to one by Peter Thiel and Blake Masters is a book that is exactly that. Is about exactly that. Going from zero to one, specifically going from something not existing to one existing. There's a quote: um, "Doing what we already know." how to do takes the world from one to n adding more of something familiar but every time we create something new we go from zero to one one. so while most get lost in incremental improvement teal focuses on creating the completely new zero to one is about how to build companies that create new things the book looks at how monopolies and competitions compare and aims to show that that monopolies are where the real value lies both for companies and for end consumers. This is because while competition results in incremental improvement, again, that into one, I mean, one to n idea, creating something completely new, like monopolies do, is far more valuable. Competition leads to a war mentality, where monopolies lead to an abundance mentality. Monopolies, in the good sense, exist because they create something so good, others can't compete. And in doing so, monopolies are, and another quote, powerful engines for making the world better. Mm. So, yeah, the book is focused on that zero to one idea, but it's also looking at monopolies and how and the good aspects of them, mm. which I mean, yeah. I think uh, I think we spoke about this the last time. Um, we're discussing the book, I think that was a week ago, and how we've been led to believe that um, monopolies are bad. But mm-hmm. um, this book kind of sheds a different light to it. You yeah, know? I think um, it's been very helpful in my thinking. Mm. And it's like shifted things quite a bit to be... Because, I mean, often the books that we've read talk about that idea of incrementalism. Yeah, and yeah. Peter sort of attacks that idea a little bit. It's mm. not it's not I don't think he's like completely against it. Mm. It's just like I don't think he attacks it. I'd say that in the context of this book, you know, he he's kind of saying that and again, this is around startups. It's mm. that you'd rather do zero to one. I think your level of success is driven by the zero to one idea. Yeah. But the one to end as much as, like you're saying, he attacks that idea, I don't feel like he attacks that idea. He says, I, I believe that the one to end 
needs to be there for for us to get better products at the end of the day. You know, yeah. it's it's vital in some sense, but it's kind of saying if you want to create a startup that's very successful, mm. you need to have that zero to one idea. Yeah, you know, rather than a one to end, a one to end, then you'll be found with a lot of competition, and as he says, like competition, you know, eventually leads to prices being uh, going down. As a startup, that's not a place that a startup actually survives. Yeah. You know, like, <laughs> yes, you know, for, but for for the company, yeah. it's actually not the best position to be in, you know. I, I, so I still believe that that one to end is important. I, I mean, yeah. that's the whole premise of Atomic Habits, if we really think about it, that, you know, you need to do that incremental change. You know, you, doing nothing is not ideal. You'd rather do 0.1 every single day because that mm. amounts to something better at the end of a period of time. So that still has its benefits, you mm. know. I mean, in terms of, like, self-improvement and other kind of thing. I, I still think it's important yeah but you know but if you want to create something that stands out on the other hand then you need that zero to one you yeah. know you need that breakthrough yeah you know yeah if you don't want to have to deal with the competition mm-hmm. but just focus on that mm-hmm. business and mm-hmm. focus on making that like amazing product or yeah. whatever it is yeah. yeah then yeah standing out is the the thing to yeah. do <laughs> and not getting pulled into that competition mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean, I think even later in the book, it kind of shows some of the things that people need to look out for. Because, for instance, people want to create something that appeals to everyone, but I think he kind of stresses the fact that you need to create a product that appeals to a small, or you need to choose a small market. Mm, yeah, you know, at the end of then the yeah. you scale up from that. Yeah. You know. Um, yeah, we always want to go massive. massive but it's like, just kind of like, again, sure, if man. I use your words, yeah. attacks <laughs> the idea of going big, you know. Yes, I yeah. mean, I think it's, by nature, I think everyone wants to do it big. But, yeah. you know, you have to be like, okay. Again, like it says, it looks at, I think, what is it? The durability of the company. Yeah. Like, where do you want the company to be in 10 years? That's more yeah. important than now. So you need to build up to what you feel in, your company needs to look like in 10 years time yeah mm. no he, he makes some really strong points yeah and mm. and i think it is a very mm. good way of looking at mm. how do you create a, a startup that actually lasts yeah mm. and doesn't um fall into certain traps mm. and things like that I mean, um, I've never thought of myself as an entrepreneur. I think you know this. <laughs> it's like mm. one of those things. I think I always joke, but maybe there's some truth to that. I, I'm happy making other people rich, <laughs> you know, than starting my own thing. Yeah. But I mean, there've been some ideas that I've had, and I'm like, oh, like the, I can see that, and that actually makes sense. And I mean, I think the one important or oh, the crazy section. I don't know if you remember the book. It talks about interviewing a physicist. And the guy screams out, he's like, I already uh, yeah. know what you're going yeah, to ask. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, like, I'm a fan of science, but I don't think I'm that hard-headed, yeah. <laughs> you know? Um, yeah. But yeah, no, and just to dig further on how he talks about the recruitment process, you know, it's um, companies need to know that you are the value and not them, you mm. know, of how when they're selling you to join a company. It's not about, or oh, you work with the best this, this, and that, you know, because, I mean, let's be honest, they're probably 
five other better companies in a different sense, you know, mm. uh, but rather it should be like, okay, what value are you going to add to our company and in turn, what value you might live with, you know? Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Okay, so we've spoken about a bunch of like little random <laughs> little pieces, pieces given, yes. some, <laughs> given some, uh, what do you call them, tasters? Yeah. Um, should we go through the, the chapters just like normal? I don't have the three points, mm-hmm. like highlight points. No, so. we, we can like, uh, yeah, go through the different chapters, cool. I think, um, as okay. best as we can. <laughs> yeah, so, so let's um, very briefly look at the, the zero to one chapter, cool. which I think we've already kind of touched on, so I won't dig into that too much, cool. but just to read um, initial parts. So doing what we already know how to do takes us the world from one to n. So this is the same thing I said in the introduction. Um, And adding, so yeah, one to n, adding something more familiar or basically adding more of something familiar. But every time we create something new, we go from zero to one. So that's the whole idea of the first chapter and just sort of digging into that a bit. Um, Well, sorry, not the first chapter, the preface. Or preface, depending how you say. How you say. <laughs> okay, shall we go on to the challenge of the, the future? future. Okay, so I've got some little points that we can chat through, and then yeah. yeah. Okay, so to start off with, the chapter says here: Whenever I interview someone for a job, I like to ask this question, what he later calls the contrarian question: What important truth do very pe- do very few people agree with you on? So that's his like go-to interview question because it kind of makes someone say or makes you realize what the person is able to do in terms of thinking outside of the bounds of of society and the way that that people normally think. Uh, I've thought about the question for a bit, and I don't have a good answer for it. So I would, uh, I wouldn't make his cut. Uh, yeah. Do you have a? I know I don't, but uh, I think there was a point that he made, uh, which is important. That to answer that question, you must have created. I think it's it's only from creation can you properly answer that? I, I don't know which part of the book, but he kind of says it in that sense. Or I'm paraphrasing that exactly. Okay. In the sense that when you come up with an idea, only then can you interrogate that idea enough to the point where you can do other people agree with this idea or not. And in most cases, that idea has to be one that's against the norm. Mm. You know, it goes against against the grain you know like for instance he talks about how people attack the education system like okay good but it's like what have you created that's similar to you or that can be seen in the same light as the education system that then people essentially the education system doesn't agree on i don't know if i'm making i'm not fully following (laughs) no so it's it's um you have to put forth something that um, questions people's thinking. Yes, yeah. You know, and it it has to be a new idea, mm. right? So, again, so to agree with you, like, I don't think I have any brilliant <laughs> ideas that I've thought of that I can pose forward that... We actually both have brilliant ideas. We just don't <laughs> want to reveal <laughs> you them, know, you know? Our secrets. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it's... Uh, 
it's that putting that forward and then a bunch of people coming to be like oh no we we don't agree with you on this this and that but you still hold to it and mm. kind of show them why that excel or the, why that would excel yeah mm. i mean he he gives his one because mm. he in the chapter he talks a little bit about globalization and things like mm. that and how most people think that um globalization is the, like the main thing in mm. the future um and the expanding globalization is the important mm-hmm. thing mm-hmm. And, and that and then his contrarian idea is he says here on page eight my own answer to the contrarian question is that most people think of the future, that the future world will be defined by globalization, but the truth is that technology matters more. Uh-huh. So he's big on technology and the way that he defines technology is any new or better way uh-huh. of doing things. Um, so he, and I think later in the book, he sort of fleshes out some of the ideas, uh-huh. not directly linking it to this, but sort of uh-huh. relating it to this way he he talks about how you can't... Oh, it's there's actually a little um, blurb here. So, in a world of scarce resources, globalization without new technology is unsustainable. Whoa. So, if you have globalization, like basically more of things across the globe, I guess, <laughs> um, and more connections to other people and all that kind of stuff, but you don't have technology, then you'll go towards the um i think in the last chapter it's like that ebb and flow yeah yeah, or even extinction but yeah but again so just going back to the point i was trying to put across his idea opposes the mainstream thinking yeah so that's what i'm saying to sort of answer that question you need an idea that probably you can defend right that most people don't agree on. So mm-hmm. in this case, like almost everyone, or how he puts it, everyone's for globalization, yet he's like, no, technology is the better of the two. Thing to pursue, yeah. Mm. You see, so, and to him, and I mean, he kind of defines technology as zero to one. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I mean, he would obviously be for that because yeah. this whole book is about <laughs> that. And yet globaliz- globalization is one to end. Yeah. You know, so it's it's a good way of framing it. Mm. Yeah, yeah, and, and there's the, the idea that he puts in this chapter as well: vertical progress versus horizontal mm. progress. So it's just another way of framing it, mm. where one to n is the idea of like expanding out horizontal mm. progress, whereas um, zero to one it's is like what a leap. is like technology where it's going up. It's mm. a different. It's on. It's on a different axis. Mm. <laughs> um, yeah, so one to end copying things versus zero to one new things. Creation, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, what you said, creation. Um, so then uh, at the end of the chapter, he says something which, yeah, is helpful. So this book is about asking questions. Ask, it's about the questions you must ask and answer to succeed in business, in the business of doing new things. What follows is not a manual or a record of knowledge, but an exercise in thinking, because that is what a startup has to do. The quest- they have to question received ideas and rethink businesses from scratch. Um, and then he defines a startup as well a little bit earlier on as a small group of people bound together by a sense of mission 
that have to change the world for the better. The easiest explanation for for this is negative. It's hard to develop new things in big organizations, and it's even harder to do it by yourself. So yeah, that doesn't really tie together very well. But the I think his general idea there is just saying if you if you're wanting to to create new things and do a and have a startup, then you want to have a team of people that you're doing it with mm. because doing it alone is extremely difficult. Mm. Um, yeah, and then um, yeah, yeah. So challenges existing companies because he says he says uh, when you when you're in a organization often what ends up happening is as it grows bigger gesturing that you are being productive and doing things Mm. is more valuable in terms of like career growth and things like that than actually doing valuable things Things, yeah um which is just a yeah it's a funny (laughs) funny thing that he groups under that startup startup thinking and how do you approach going um from zero to one don't fall into that category of being like pretending to be uh, productive. productive. Actually mm. do things and try and figure things out mm. and think about what you're doing rather than just sort of following on. So that's, yeah, um, that's the, the, I think, general idea of, of challenging the future. Mm. Cool. Should we go on to the next one? Yep. Okay. Party like it's 1999. I like the name of this chapter. <laughs> um, yeah, so I don't know if you want to touch on this one or if you want me to, no, to give go, a summary. Go for it and then... So, for this chapter, I actually confused this chapter in my mind with the later chapter where he, he talks about the different... There's like four different ways of um, thinking about the future... So, basically, there's optimism and pessimism, and then there's definite and indefinite, and then and we'll dig into those. But I I thought this chapter touched on that, but it actually doesn't. But it kind of still falls into into that sort of way of thinking about things, because it falls under the definite optimism category, because party like it's nineteen nine nineteen ninety nine. Um, he writes here, the 1990s, when no loss was too big to be described as an investment in an even bigger, brighter future. So the way that people thought at that time was that everything is doable oh. and everything is um, going to point towards a bright and better future. Whereas now we find ourselves in like a bit of a mishmash between different ways of thinking. But we often look at the world as sort of random and that. And this is kind of saying don't don't get confused in terms of saying you're able to achieve absolutely everything. But also don't like lose yourself in the I can't achieve anything and I'll just have to accept things mm. for the way that they are and take small steps forward. Mm. Um, because if you do fall into that camp, then you're not going to sort of go for it and just sort of be like, okay, I can maybe actually make this thing work. Mm. Um, and he's saying, 
try and have that frame of mind where you you just you party like it's 1999 you just go for it and mm. um, because that's when when things happen um, and a last comment on that is often when he speaks about things like this i think of elon because he's he's that not that he does everything perfectly but he he's that kind of guy that really goes for it mm. and like the things that he's done almost shouldn't have worked out but because he's just like absolutely relentlessly saying we will get we'll this right, right yeah. and he gives unrealistic deadlines and things like that but with those unrealistic deadlines people things actually get, done. get it get things done mm. it takes a little bit longer sometimes but he's sent rockets to the moon mm. he's built electric cars um yeah yeah, no, just to add to that, in that first section, there's something I marked. It says, um, the first step to thinking clearly is to question what we think we know about the past. I think that's that's very important as well. You know, like you're saying, mm-hmm. like doing things in, the, in 1999, people would just go for it. But it's like you need to actually critically think of what has happened before and be like, okay, we're doing this. And I think... I think maybe that's why there was that boom then because people were like, this has never been done before. Mm. Let's go for it. You know, they they didn't have ask a lot of what ifs. It's like, okay, it's not in the past. You know, let's go for it. You mm. know, um, that's how I look at what part in like 1999 is. And it's also not, um, I guess, looking at the past and being like, okay, well, this has been tried and mm. I guess it's not worthwhile. Mm-hmm. Um, it's more about this doesn't exist, you know. <laughs> um, so later in the chapter, um, on page 20, he goes through uh, Silicon Valley's four big lessons um, from the dot-com crash okay. and how those four lessons guide the way that, I guess, most people think, including the way that Silicon Valley people think. And so he gives these four things and he, the one is make in, incremental advances. So I think that's fairly obvious. Take small steps towards doing things better. Then stay lean and flexible. So he says your lean is code for unplanned. Um, and because planning is, as he puts it, it's arrogant and inflexible. Um, but you'll see he comments on stuff just now. Um, so yeah, making intre- incremental advances, staying lean and flexible improve on the competition so don't try and create a new market prematurely is what that sort mm. of summarizes and then focus on product not sales so ba- basically build the best product mm. you possibly can and he says that these are the four big lessons that silicon valley learned from um from that dot-com crash but then he says that and this is something that caught me by surprise which mm. is quite cool um he says that these lessons have become dogma in the startup world. So basically, it's just like people religiously believe these um, these four things. And I mean, if I reflect on myself and you were to say to me, we were reading a book and we came across these four things, Ooh. I'd be like, yeah, I think all four of those things I would agree with. Um, but then he says, yeah, those things have become dogma. And he says, yet the opposite principles are probably more correct. So he says, uh, and these are the four opposing ones. 
uh, it's better to risk boldness than triviality. Again, think to towards Elon. I oh. think I'm, I'm gonna probably <laughs> use Elon a few times, yeah. Which is sad because he's like, a, I don't, he's a good example to use, but also he's like a he's such an outlier mm. that it's sometimes not helpful because you can think like, oh yeah, just do what he's doing mm-hmm. and then things will work. But and I mean, he has his own issues. So. Um, I think we've said in the past on this podcast, like, I'm glad that people like him exist, but I wouldn't want to be um, So, yeah, it's better to risk boldness than triviality because of those things where you you can actually make progress because you're partying like it's 1999 mm-hmm. and you're like, we can do this. And then you actually make those steps rather than just sort of doing mm-hmm. the same old And then he says, two, a bad plan is better than no plan. So that's opposed to saying lean and flexible Mm. um, because the lean and flexible thing is sort of, we don't have a plan, but rather just at least have a plan, even if it's a bad Mm. one. Then um, competitive markets destroy profits is the third one. So that's opposed to improve on competition. And because his whole thing is like, if you're doing a startup, (laughs) Don't mm. fall into the competition, competition. trap <laughs> because, yeah, he touches on it many times in the book, but even with school and things, he says that we get so lost into thinking that competition is this thing that we have to do. Mm. Like, of course we have to compete. Like, that's the norm. We have to be the best of the best. <laughs> yeah. And he's like, you need to get up far away mm. from that. Just don't even think about mm. competition because you shouldn't be mm. trying to compete because... There's so many others yeah. in that mm. competition that it's you're bound to, to really struggle mm. and probably fail. I um, mean, he didn't probably phrase it like that, but I'm just a thought now. I was, think, I was thinking about how he says why his employees at PayPal were successful is because they were all given different roles. Mm. And if you, he, I don't know if he actually said it, but if I think about it now, that actually eliminated competition because everyone had a definite role like a well-defined role that they needed to because he did say everyone was evaluated based on that specific role he assigned to them you know so in a sense he was eliminating competition Mm. and that's within the company mm, because he views it as those two different things Mm, mm. it's competition as in competing with outside but also as individuals because exactly within that company that school example is an individual sort of competition not a Mm. you know company wide um but he he kind of says the effects are very similar in Mm. on individual as a business yeah as businesses yeah um and then the fourth one is sales matter just as much as product i i'm i think i'm slowly wrapping my head around that but I was reflecting on it, and it's kind of funny because he talks about the sales and distribution. Mm. Are you gonna? <laughs> no, God, <laughs> that's just the points that uh, you struggle with. Always the interesting ones, but <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, because I, I always tend towards the, I like creating things. I mm. don't like um, selling things, especially like the whole snake oil selling mm. kind of vibe. Which obviously Teal isn't being like sell snake oil. <laughs> um, so, but I remember with the phone stand thing. Mm. So we created something, <laughs> and it's cool. Like it's a very simple design. I mean, the the uh, it did really well mm. when we put it on the Thingiverse mm. um, marketplace. Which is for those who don't know, it's like a 
online 3D Dependent. marketplace. Well, it's not a marketplace, sorry. It's, it's where people share their designs. Share their designs, yeah. There are 3D marketplaces, which in retrospect, maybe that's yeah, where we should have put, put it. Um, but, but the... The cool thing is, like, people really liked it, oh. and like, not a small amount of people oh. either. But we tried to do the manufacturing thing, and you, um, you joined in that oh. venture. Oh. And to say it <laughs> nicely, we were not good at that. Like, we are not good at. It was a confirmation that some of us just need to be stay employees. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, we need to make other people rich. Um, but yeah, that. It's because, and I think the idea is sort of, oh, you know, if I have this great thing, then obviously people will buy it. Mm. But that's not actually the case. You need to make people aware of it Mm. and you need to go through that process of making it easy Mm. for people to get hold of, which is difficult. And that's like a whole thing on its own. Mm. Um, So, yeah, it's. Um, something I'd like to get better at, but mm. not again, not the snake oil sales mm. part, but just like when you have a product that you know is valuable and you can convey that well, mm. and you can also set up the right distribution mm. channels mm. for that, whether that's like the distribution channel could be in your current company, you, uh, just chat to people and you say, Oh, why don't you use this mm. thing? Because it's helpful. Mm. That's one sort of way of doing sales. Um, it's not specifically selling something for money, mm-hmm. but it's still... Creating what, awareness. Yeah, I think Teal would still classify that under sales. Mm-hmm. Um, but then also, you, it could be like going door to door and saying, even though that won't really work these days, <laughs> going in, a, in quotes door to door. You might think, but again, it goes back to there's that section under the chapter that it says... It's about planting the idea, mm. you know, because I think so often we think that it hasn't gotten to us, but one way or another, it has gotten to us. You know, mm. like, for instance, I mean, I don't know if they still claim this, but Apple always claimed that they're a product-driving company, you know, uh, that they don't need to advertise kind of the product kind of, mm. you know, does it on its own, but... In essence, like if you really think about it, I feel they created a product that sort of does the advertising, which is the sales pitch. (laughs) You know, they've created a product that when people look at it, just like, oh, because he actually puts it that it was like the aim was to create very well-designed product, like, Mm. you know, something that's well-designed and whatnot. And it's like, that will shift it towards that, that if people see an Apple device, it's like, oh, what's that? You know, it, mm. grab, it grabs their attention and whatnot, but it's like, it's more like a self-marketing to more or less. I, sorry, carry on. No, no, no. I think I kind of agree, but I also disagree. I don't know. Maybe you're not saying but, this. But, but that's what I'm saying. Like, I don't know how much of it still exists now, but initially when they started, that was essentially the the idea that they were going with yeah now i don't like well, where i was going with, i was like now i don't think so much anymore because it's like everywhere <laughs> you know but yeah yeah that's the thing i think it's uh, and and this is what, what i i would 
if I was to put myself in the mind of Peter, <laughs> not you, Peter. <laughs> yeah, Peter. Uh, uh, but then I think he would say something like, Apple's a, the one of the most incredible things about Steve Jobs was, I mean... There's there's a, there is somewhere a, that he talks about. Yeah. I think we'll get to it. I'm sure I have a note somewhere about it. But where it's essentially like the design the design thing, mm. but it's not about the product design. Mm. That's a part of it, mm. and it's in a very important mm. part of it. But the distribution and sales, and not in the like very in-your-face sales. Mm. So I think you, you're right about the aesthetic of the product being part of the mm. selling, but what Teal is saying is if you think that that's the only thing that's going to sell, if you think focus on product, not sales, mm. then you're going to fall into the trap. Mm. But if you realize that sales matter just as much as the product, then what you'll do is you'll set up things that make it easy to sell. Mm. So one of the things that Jobs was really good at was not just focusing on the product and being obsessive about every little aspect Mm. of the product, but also making it easy to sell. Mm. Because when you go into an Apple store, it's really like nice. And it you it almost makes you want mm, to like, be a part of that ecosystem. Be part of the cult. And, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so I think that is a very strong form mm. of sales. And I think Teal would say that's the best kind of sales. Because it's not like, hey, buy this thing, mm. you must buy this thing. Mm. It's just like it makes it so easy and so mm. enticing for mm. you to buy it mm. that it's like, oh, okay. I'm, it just I want makes, to buy that. Aside from the fact that you have to take out like a <laughs> Million rand loan to buy. So you live or something. But yeah, long story short, I think we both agree sales matters <laughs> more than we realized. Um, yeah. There's lo- two last things there. Um, so it says, yeah, less important but more obvious. Uh, it was also a peak of clarity. So this is talking about... Um, the early 2000s and 1999, so it's still in that party like it's 1999 chapter. So the market high of 2000 was obviously a peak of insanity. Less obvious, but more important though, it was also the peak of clarity. Because people looked far into the future and saw how much valuable technology we would need to get there safely. And they judged themselves capable of creating it. We still need new technology and we even may need some 1999 style hubris and exuberance to get it. Um, and then he says here at the end, uh, which is what you said earlier, ask yourself how much of what you know about business is shapen by mistaken reactions to past mistakes. The most contrarian thing of all is not to oppose the crowd, but to think for yourself. So yeah, that's actually... The, the kind of stuff that you were talking about. Mm. But when I read that, uh, do you know what book came to mind? What? <laughs> How we think. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> I yeah. was like, that, that, that point is quite opposing to, you know, um, some of the ideas that were put forth by that book. <laughs> uh, I think it was similar because they were talking about uh, not getting lost in your, in that luck, like, in the, sort of cult mentality oh. so it has the independence thinking but it also kind of says you need to think together oh yeah um, and this yeah. kind of is like you need to 
yeah, you for can't yourself. think in isolation. <laughs> yeah. I, don't know, I don't know if Teal means like completely by yourself. Because you would still be like, you need to have that small group of people like, that, you can, yeah. that you can think through things with. Yeah, which is a shame because it kind of, even down the line, kind of opposes starting a business on your own. It kind of encourages mm. you having, you know. So it's a very interesting... <laughs> all of the ideas, like, with most things... <laughs> It's tying pieces together like this is true in certain contexts, Ooh. but then in other contexts, it's unhealthy. Ooh. Like if you only thinking by yourself all the time, you probably are looking towards an insane asylum Ooh. because you, you, it's not all ideas that are terrible. Ooh. But if you're wanting to start a startup and you're thinking the same way as everyone else, then you're going to fall into competition. And that's not good. But again, if you think about yourself, you do not know what everyone else is thinking. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Okay, so in conclusion, do a bit of thinking about yourself and not. (laughs) Um, Okay, shall we go into Mm. chapter three? Yeah. Okay, cool. So all companies are different. Is the... All happy companies are different. Um. So this is essentially a chapter on discussing the benefits of a monopoly. Uh-huh. So that's what he means by different. That monopolies generally, like Google, you can think of as a search and advertising monopoly. Okay, not specifically advertising, but a search monopoly. Um, and then other companies like Tesla, I guess, is sort of a monopoly and SpaceX as well. Because they are, they made massive moves there. Although mm. it's debatable over time, they probably Tesla will be less of a monopoly. But but yeah, I mean, monopolies do unique things, and in that way, they are happily different from others. Because going back to what we keep on saying, they don't fall into the competition. Mm. Um, yeah. So then. He gives you a, the contrarian question. Remember, he, he had that interview question about uh, what thought do you have that's opposed to other people's thoughts. Um, but the contrarian question for companies is what valuable company is nobody building? So think about that and then get back to us with your great idea so that we can build a great company together. Actually, don't do that. Peter and I are probably not <laughs> able to build it with. <laughs> um, okay, but the in on page 24, there's the, um, I guess, summary of economics. Oh. So, I don't know if I should maybe read through that quick to discuss perfect competition. So... Yeah, economists uh, use two simplified models to explain the difference between perfect competition and a monopoly. And then I'll, the summarized version is that per- perfect competition is considered as the like ideal default state for economics. Um, and under perfect competition in the long run, this is what Peel, um, Peel, what Teal claims, is under perfect competition, in the long run, no company makes an economic profit because everyone is fighting and then you end up just being like, okay, um, yeah, a new 
companies come in and make things and they compete and they drive down the price but then they get extinct because it's too low and no profit and stuff so that's perfect competition and teal's like this is bad um and so then he says yeah in this book we're not interested in illegal bullies or government favorites by monopoly we mean the kind of company that's so good at what it does that no other firm can offer a close substitute yeah that's this is the section where we were discussing how i didn't see capitalism and competition as being opposites Mm -hmm. so yeah also interesting because you'd think capitalism is and competition kind of go together because everyone's competing for capital and, Mm. and stuff but teal is saying actually capitalism is premised on the accumulation of capital but under perfect competition all profits get competed away the lesson for entrepreneurs is clear if you want to create and capture lasting value don't build an undifferentiated commodity business. So basically be different. Oh. Um, yeah. It it clears up that idea of competition and monopoly. monopoly yeah. Um, yeah. Okay, then... I don't know if you want to add anything there, Peter. No, nothing to add. I think you've covered most. Okay, then page 28... So I've got a note here um, where it says, so it's under the section called competitive lies. And these are essentially the lies that people tell themselves when they're wanting to start a new company. Mm. And so he says, yeah, entrepreneurs are always biased to understate the scale of competition, but that's the biggest mistake a startup can make. So yeah, he, he says that we often trick ourselves into when we're entering into a competitive market, um, later on in the book, he talks about green energy, the green energy market. And then he says, what people say is, you know, um, it's, uh, I can't remember what the numbers are, but let's say it's a trillion dollar market. And so if I was to capture 20% of the market, then um, I'll I'll make so much money, it's crazy. And like I can definitely capture twenty percent of the market, um, and then what you don't realize is that that's one percent of the global market. Yeah, and then it shrinks further and further to the global solar market, and then zero point one of the entire solar market, the entire, entire energy market, mm. because mm. what he was saying is you you end up instead of saying okay we are competing in the energy space and there's a crazy amount of competition. Mm. What people do, and it's a massive mistake that they make, is they will look and almost pretend that they are differentiated when they're actually mm, not. not yeah. Um, so yeah. yeah, I think it's about um, not understanding what the problem is. And I mean, if you go back to our days where... We tried something <laughs> um, for us to feel better about what we're delivering. Because if you really think about it, if you read this book, you're like, how many Ford stands are there really? Yeah. <laughs> you know? But then our business coach at the, at the time said, said to frame it as we're selling convenience. You know? 
So, like, if you grab around that, it's like, okay, that's what we're selling. We're mm. the only people driving this, you know, so it's the same as the solar the, the solar craze. People were like, oh, you know, we if we capture 20% of the market, it's like, but again, like you said, it's just in the solar market. Mm. Like, what other alternative energies are there? Because if you think of the, brought about the gas that also, you know, since the prices of that, was slammed so low that even made it harder for them to mm. so 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 it's like people sort of at blink you know try to be as oblivious as possible to what their competitors may be you know they have mm. this tunnel vision which I think is what he's advising I guess that you really need to understand which industry you're really getting into yeah, you know yeah. and. And how much competition really is, is there? there? You know, yeah. like, because, I mean, even in that, before you get there, it's about the whole, how the U.S. advertising industry compares yes. to yes, the whole yeah. world. You know, there's that as well. So, like, Google might seem to be leading in the U.S., but where does it actually fall across the globe? You yeah. know, there's that. I mean, there's sections where it dominates the market, like the search engine, like, I mean... He goes on to say it's so vast that it's actually a Google a dictionary term now. Like Googling yeah. has made its way into the dictionary, you know. Yeah. That just shows you at what level that business, you He's know, operating, is yeah. operating. But the other aspect of Google that I'm sure no people not everyone knows about. Mm. You know, I mean, I think if you tell most people that Google is one of the biggest advertising agencies. They actually don't know that. They're, yeah. They're like, what do you mean by that? But they forget that YouTube is, you know, riddled with ads. Like, how do you think the ads end up there? Someone's mm. paying for those ads to be there, you know? So, yeah, it's about not having a clear picture of what you're getting yourself into. You yeah. Know? And it's funny as well because he he says the the thing with non-monopolists. Um, so he, he obviously when a company becomes a monopoly, they don't want to label themselves label themselves as a monopoly. monopoly. So then he says, yeah, the thing with non-monopolists is that they exaggerate their distinction by defining their market as the intersection of smaller markets. Oh. So they like, for example, if you are um a restaurant you might say i'm a british food restaurant um and i'm in palo alto and that's my specific niche but actually you're competing with just restaurants all over the place um and so it's it's a much and you you're also competing with a bunch of other things like food chains and stuff like that because you can go to a grocery shop or so people make the mistake of saying defining themselves as the intersection of lots of things mm, and saying, no, that's, that's niche. niche. Which in some sense might be true. Yeah, yeah. But you need to be very careful yeah. and make very sure mm. that it is a real niche and not like it's just a deceptive, you think it's a niche, but it's not actually. And a niche that people actually want. Exactly. Because it's like... Exactly, yeah. Who, that's who, probably who, more important. Mm, who told you that people, they actually want their British food. Exactly, <laughs> you know? yeah. But then on the other on the contrast, monopolists disguise their monopoly by framing it as the union mm-hmm. of several larger markets. So a search engine um 
might say no, um, but we're like search engine and we also do mobile phones Ooh. and we also do wearables. And if you look at that market, like it's massive. But in terms of just search engine, Google's like 70 or whatever percent well, of the, the market. market share. Yeah. So, yeah, it's funny. Okay, monopoly capitalism. So it says here, do outsized profits, so this is page 32, do outsized profits come at the expense of of the rest of society? Actually, yes. Profits come out of consumers' wallets and monopolies deserve their bad reputation. And then he says here, but only in a world where nothing changes. So monopolies, so again, the chapter is framed under... Uh, happy companies are different and so most people think okay monopoly bad that's the way that people think and he's saying look if you think about monopolies as these things that just take everyone's money and don't add value to the world yeah they are bad but his definition of monopoly is to say it's something that creates new value so valuable that other people can't compete and it's not old value done better or big companies buying up everything he's saying new value and so in a world where nothing changes you write about monopoly saying okay they're very bad but in a world where monopolies actually create value what he calls creative monopolists creative monopolists give customers more choice by adding entirely new categories of abundance to the world Creative monopolies are not just good for the rest of this so for the rest of society; <clears throat> they're powerful engines for making it better. Mm. So yeah, I think it's a good argument for monopolies being a good thing. Mm. Um, I've got a last point for that chapter on page thirty-four. He ends the chapter off here by saying, "All happy companies are different. Each one earns a monopoly by solving a unique problem." All failed companies are the same. They fail to escape competition. Mm. So. I have that one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we often end up with the same same things. Um, okay. Should we move on to the yeah. ideology no of competition? competition? Ideology was always a word that tripped me up. Um, but ideology is just ideas. Ideas. <laughs> like a set of ideas that someone or some group of people hold to so ideology of competition is talking about when you have or when you're thinking about competition what are the ideas that people have and hold to um that are dangerous i guess um so he opens the chapter there creative monopoly means New products that benefit everybody and sustainable profits for the creator. Competition means no profits for anybody, no meaningful differentiation, and a struggle for survival. Um, then page 36, higher education is the place where people... So this is that discussion that we had. <laughs> yeah. uh, higher education is the place where people who had big dreams in high school get stuck in a fierce rivalry with equally smart peers over conventional careers like management consulting and investment banking. Yep. The dangers of the way that we think about what we have to do. Yes, like we have to compete. Um, yeah. I don't know if you have any thoughts there. 
Yeah, like I said, it was an, it was interesting, like you said, like um, to have someone again, like his question, like kind of oppose an idea that, I mean, I believe most of my life has sort of been pushed. You know, we always pushed into competing with one another, but not actually. I think no one actually points out how damaging it can it can mm. actually be. I think we see the end results. I mean, for instance, like social media, everyone's trying to put their best foot forward. That's mm. an ideal example of or an an example of competition. Everyone wants to one up the other and what are the end results? People find themselves in not so good states, you know, because they're like, oh look at the, that person, you know, is you know, I'm trying to be like them but I can't mm. and that comes with all sorts of other things, you know. But no one has no has ever actually expressed that as a result of competition. Mm. Because essentially it is. I mean it's framed in different ways. And I think we've um spoken about the effects of social media in different books in a different way. But if you think about it in this sense, that's that's another idea that you can add to that. That it's at the end of the day it's people competing with one another. Yeah, we get know? lost in that competition. Mm, mm. And we think that the that um what he would say is like rivalry is mm. the thing that we have to, to do. do to drive us. Like yeah. I mean even in our careers, like mm. we feel like we need to compete with our peers, our colleagues, but in actual sense that's more damaging than actually delegating work properly, like have everyone do what they know best. I think that's actually more beneficial to an organization mm. than people competing. Yeah, but, going back to that idea that you mentioned. Mm, but society has just sort of preached the whole idea of competition at any level. Mm. And that's what it says. Like we we in this pool where at every level it's like, oh he we taught the same thing, but at the same time, it's like someone has to come out as the best because that's what exams are structured to mm-hmm. be. And only those that don't just learn the bare minimum are the ones that are, end up being A students. But, you know, if you actually just do as it intends, it's still not good enough, mm-hmm. you know. But that's what you're taught. Only if you then take that extra mile to be like, oh, I work hard at this, you know, you know, learn more than what was taught to us. We end up being an student. you know, mm-hmm. that competition mentality that drives people in that regard. And on the surface, that looks that's good, you know, because that's what we've been taught all along. Mm-hmm. But we forget what other effects arise from that, you know. Yeah, it's also it's like the classic where you, if you are. Um, going to university and you're like, what are the best jobs? It's like engineer, mm-hmm. doctor, lawyer, those kinds of things. Um, and that's true. Those are good jobs, mm. but they are such fiercely competitive jobs. And I mean, maybe not as competitive as like entering a market because you there's lots of legal things that need to happen. There's lots of um, engineering that needs mm. to be done and stuff like that. So it's not like you're not going to... Um, be successful if you do learn really hard and things and compete in that but you're not gonna get um that um what he says later is a power law you're not gonna get that exponential difference and um value 
if you are just lost in that competing Ooh. with other people. Ooh. If you're going to become the best doctor, that's a wonderful thing. But it's don't don't like forget that it's an extremely competitive Ooh. thing, and you're going to spend a lot of time trying to be better than other people when that's that's not needed. Ooh. Like you don't. You really actually don't need to do that. You <laughs> just need to um, do the things that you are interested in doing well. And I mean, yeah, someone could argue that it is needed because yeah. you need to literally pass the exams and things. But yeah. We, we're not saying that everyone needs to be a doctor, you know, but it's just that you, I think you kind of need to no, before and that's what you're destined to do. <laughs> if if I may, like, yeah. but once there, you're not supposed to. How can I put this? Crush other people in the process, if I may. Mm. Like you, you need to learn to work with others. You know, to kind of do an even better job. You know, you're mm. not supposed to do things that will make others look bad, you know, yeah. the process, you know. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think he ends off the chapter, like, perfectly. He says, um, if you can recognize competition as a destructive force oh. instead of a sign of value, oh. you're already more sane than most. Because oh. most of us get lost in the ideology of competition. Oh. Um, but actually can be a very destructive thing. Yeah. And so be sane <laughs> and uh, don't get lost in that. Cool. Shall we go sure. to the last move advantage? Yeah. Okay, so the last move advantage, I I thought that what he was saying here is that you need to wait until other people have done stuff in the field and then mm, um, do something. Then do something. And I think the he's not directly saying that oh. he's he's what he's actually saying is because this chapter is about durability and about durability being key oh. so he's when he says last mover advantage he's saying be the last one to make the big move that basically makes you the monopoly oh. in that thing in that field and that's what he means by last mover oh. advantage so he starts off the chapter there saying Escaping competition will give you a monopoly, but even a monopoly is only a great business if it can endure the future. And so, yeah, durability is key. Oh. You need to be the last one that does the big move. <laughs> um, yeah. He, um, later on, he says, yeah, for a company to be valuable, it must grow and endure, which are yeah, same sort of principles. Oh. And often people will focus on what is what are the things that um I need to do now to make sure that mm. like the company survives the next little bit? Yeah. But he talks about if you if you are thinking like that, you might survive for the next little bit, but most likely if you're not at some point trying to look towards the future like he talks about that ten to twenty year mm. horizon, then you you're probably gonna fail yeah. over time because you'll end up just being out competing. Oh. Um, yeah. 
Um, I don't know if you want to look up at page 48 for those. Yeah, um, the different points. Yeah, do you want to read through them and then we can chat yeah, about them? You can go for it. Okay, so um, it says here, and this is, it's, it's about thinking about how to make a durable company. Mm. So every monopoly is unique, but they usually share some combination of the following char- characteristics. Those characteristics are proprietary technology, network effects, economies of scale, and branding. Um, yeah, so I think proprietary technology is somewhat obvious. Like you need to have something that's either completely different or it's so much better. What yeah. What he would put is the 10 times better, better category. Yeah. Mm-hmm. If you just 20% better. better it's, it, the after effects are not worth you know, making that change. I think it kind of puts it that way. Yeah, you know? he says something along the lines of if you if you only make something 20% better, what you'll end up finding is most likely the amount of effort to get people aware of that change mm. and to try and sell that change and all of that will actually... that It negates that 20%. Yeah, it will just be eaten away by mm. that, which is crazy to think because mm. we think like, oh, if I make something mm. 20% better, like mm. you'll... That's a big improvement. I think, um, again, I think this is where context is also vi- uh, vital because, um, and I mean, uh, we'll go back to, I know we've referenced it, uh, the, that green, what's it called again? Green energy stuff. Yeah. Green, yeah, the the chapter. Did, yeah, but it's more of, if you claim in that your product is 20% better, you're forgetting the the part where that requires people to get rid of stuff. <laughs> mm. So, and I think it kind of puts in that and that. Some people say like, it's not worth us getting rid of stuff that we already have, put new stuff in just for a 20% um, increase, mm. you know? And I think it kind of also mentioned that that's like one industry where the efficiency over time hasn't been improved a lot. Mm. And I think, I mean, going back to when I was studying physics, that's still a big yeah, research so field, you know. Yeah. Um, it's a big research field on how to increase the efficiency. But the thing is, you only do it so much, mm. you know. And in most cases, it's how to actually get what already is there to perform better. There's, I think, I mean, there's still that research of trying to, Produce the best, you know, uh, yeah, then film. Yeah, but at the same time, it's like, it's more about improving the performance of already what's been created. Mm. You know, I think it's there's very little reinventing the wheel in that, in that category, if I may. Yeah. Mm. And I mean, it shows as well in that category. I mean, there's a few massive manufacturers mm. that basically outcompete all of the other mm. people. Like, um, I can't remember what the main ones are, but there's like Canadian Solar and mm. JA Solar and mm. a few of those kind of ones. And Genco as well, I think. That they, they're the biggest brands and they sell globally, mm. um, even in South Africa, because it's so difficult to if you want to compete with those kind of companies, mm. you know, you, they have such low margins, I would imagine, mm. on their panels and mm. stuff. That, And if you create something that's even fractionally, like even if you create something that's like 10% better, mm. 
you still need to set up the distribution and sales and all of that. And that takes an immense yeah. amount of effort and costs a lot of money mm. and stuff. So, yeah. Okay, then, um, so network effects is the other one. I think those are fairly obvious. I mean, like Facebook getting people to sign up and then oh. once there's a lot of people signed up, then, yeah, network effects. Um, economies of scale is similar as well. Um yeah, creating a lot of things, spreading out your costs over a large quantity of sales is is obviously an important thing. And so he says, yeah, a good startup should have exponential, um, should have the potential, sorry, for great scale built into its first design. And then the last one is branding. So creating a strong brand is is obviously a powerful way to claim a monopoly. Like Apple is just such a strong brand that if they were to, create another product they yeah it will it will almost definitely do well um yeah i don't know if you want to touch on anything more on those four points i think they kind of speak for themselves speak for themselves um Mm. yeah and then i think that just ties in with uh building a monopoly which is the next section Mm. yeah i mean that's a great section um yeah no no go for it and i say need uh, it's something we talked about here. I mean, the first point of building a monopoly is like start small and monopolize. Mm. I think it's an idea that we spoke about that when you you sort of need to how can I put this? Limit yourself in a way to be like I want to be there, but at the same time it's like I need to start with a very small group. Yeah. You you kind of need to have the mentality of breaking into the market, not kind of have arrived, having that have arrived statement, you mm-hmm. know, in a way. Um, yeah. Um, For me, it's difficult to, like, I struggle to still figure out what would fall into that category. Mm-hmm. Obviously, there's the examples that exist already, mm-hmm. but in terms of new examples, I still struggle. And I know he talks about finding a secret later and mm-hmm. things like that, but because the... I agree with the start small Mm. thing. And I think it's something that most of us don't do well. Mm. We most of the time want to be like, like, even in the solar example, they're comparing themselves to saying on the global market Mm. level. Mm. And it's like, no, no, Mm. (laughs) don't do that. Mm. You're going to, you need to start small. Um, And, but what is difficult for me is to try and distinguish between the, unhelpful saying i'm gonna start super small Mm. like the restaurant business where you're saying i'm a restaurant but i'm specifically doing the british Mm. english Mm. thing and in a specific place and i'm gonna be the the best there Mm. and that's a um that that can be something that doesn't work out well or Mm. it can be something that works out well like for example jack's bagels jack's bagels was a unique idea mm. that they somehow happened to get right. Like it's a nice, the branding that they did was nice. The bagels idea is nice. Like they mm. had some aesthetic and they started off small and then they've now expanded and now there's a bunch of Jack's mm. bagels. Mm. Um, and so that that's a restaurant thing that it's very similar, but it was different. And that's, I still, mm. I am still a little bit lost as to I, I think it's, what is the small that is correctly small. I think it's that differs in terms of um, how can I put this? It 
difference per product or per idea. Um, I mean, if I latch into your Jack Sprinkles idea, it's like they didn't, when they started, they went all over PE. So it's like you sort of create, I think they went to this sort of, this is our idea, and then they created a demand for it because I think there was only one branch at first. I don't know where it was. Yeah, so probably. You know? And then it's like the property created a demand for it because people were like, oh, one Jack Sprinkles, and you knew there was only one Jack Sprinkles you mm. could go to. And then they expanded within PE and kind of like, okay, like we're still creating some sort of demand because I think from that alone, like, I mean, if you have a few one by the beachfront, people come see that. And I mean, it's a tourist, uh, a lot of people travel in and out of that mm-hmm. area that taking it then to a different city was much easier because then that created that presence to be like, oh, I've seen this somewhere before, then... Let's try it out. And yeah. then that's sort of the domino effect in that regard. Mm-hmm. Because, for instance, if if they had multiple in all the cities, because the initial thing would have been, what's that? And then probably their running costs would have been way higher. Mm. You know? Um, and there's no, like, brands that n- they've built up. and Exactly. So I think that's, again, that's what I said. It varies per idea. Um because there's some way, I think it talks about, for instance, let's say the, the PayPal idea. It was still not, remember they talked about how marketing it would have cost, cost a them lot. a lot mm-hmm. m- more money, but how did they go about that? We'll pay every person that joins. Because then that is like, if I join and I get 10, sorry, if I join and get $10, you want to tell a friend to be mm-hmm. like, join that, you get free money. And that that's how that Word spreads, you know, and again, to them, they started small. Mm. They didn't go out and be like, oh, we're given given any new joiner $10 because then they would have probably crashed. Yeah. You know, but it expanded from a small scale and kind of scaled up from there. Yeah, I think that what, and I don't know if we'll solve it now, Mm. um, but I, I still am. So I'm still struggling to distinguish why, for example, something like Jack's Bagels worked, whereas the some other restaurant. Oh, uh, okay, 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 okay. Mm. Because like Jack's Bagels, right? I mean, there's lots of things that you could say. Well, of course, Jack's Bagels would work because like mm. there wasn't a bagels thing here, mm. and it tastes mm. nice. And they, mm. Yeah. But then on the other side, if someone was came to you with a Jack's Bagels idea and said cool, give me some money and invest in it because I've got this idea to start a bagels mm. thing. I probably wouldn't have given them money. Mm. Like now in retrospect, I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah of course yeah, I would have given them money. Like, yeah, look, yeah, Jack's Bagels yeah, is great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I wouldn't have probably given them money because it's like, if you, not that I have money to give, <laughs> but um, if I had money to give, it would be something like, but there's lots of restaurants. Mm. The statistics of restaurants failing is like, huge what's setting you apart yeah what's setting you apart but again it it goes back to that whole creating a need like there's probably again this goes back maybe to the secrets or untapped ideas like this is a common thing it's like we just haven't thought of the idea that everyone wants like I mean 
the question in the business aspect is like what business is no one starting essentially mm. you know um again so it's like poor the british restaurant thing can work it's just probably you need to then do a lot of research about where you want to start it up to see is there really a need for that mm. you see because i feel like maybe that's where most people miss because again like you said there are a lot of restaurants out there and as you said the, the success and failure rate are sort of you know um the failures are probably higher than the successes but again it goes back to and i would say probably it's about unique ideas because mm-hmm. let's for instance look at um Putting a lot of names within Peter. Let's think about Beershack. Mm. When Beershack started, what what attracted people to Beershack? If you remember, I don't <laughs> remember that that concept of uh, having benches where you could write on. Oh, okay. You know, and everyone wanted to go to Beershack. And if you go now, write. like that wall is like painted and has been removed. You know, yeah. but. That was like a driving force. People actually wanted to go and like leave their mark yeah. in the restaurant. Like it seems mundane, but it was like unique something idea. unique, mm. and it actually attracted customers there. Yeah, and look at them now. Like you know, it's like how many years now, and it's still going strong. Yeah, you know, and that idea is far gone. <laughs> You but know? that guy, whoever, like, because I think the it's the same guy. I don't know if it's the same guy as Jack's Bagels. It might be. It might not be. I can't remember. But the same guy who started, I think, Charlie's also started. No, it's 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 not the it, it's not the same family as the Jack's Bagels. But yeah, they have a chain of restaurants. Yeah, hopefully they don't listen to this. So, so they no, if they do, well done. Like what they, they are somehow they've managed to, to do it right. Yeah, and I do mean, it right, yeah. every restaurant of theirs, if you actually wait, you think about it, all their menus are in the same font. Mm. You know, yeah. It's, there's some. There's very different aspects, but there's also similarities. Similarities, yeah, yeah. But okay, let's yeah. <laughs> move on to. So, I mean, I think we already touched on the scaling up aspect. Mm. So, there's the the three different parts. The one is the um, starting small and monopolize, and then so it's scaling up as well is the other one. Mm. So once you've dominated that niche market, then you should gradually expand. We touched on Jack's Bagels doing mm. quite well there. And then this was something that I found really surprising again. It, this book had a lot of nice surprises. He says you don't disrupt. disrupt yeah. That's one of the other things. So Silicon Valley has become obsessed with disruption, they say. And then it says, this seemingly trivial fad matters because it distorts an entrepreneur's self-understanding in an inherently competitive way. So it basically makes you think competitively. Oh. So don't disrupt is saying, don't fall into the trap. I'm just using that phrase Ooh. a lot. Don't fall into the trap of trying to disrupt a market. Just like do something Ooh. different. Um, he says, yeah, um, PayPal could be seen as a disrupt as disruptive, but we didn't try to directly change any large competitor. Mm-hmm. It's true that we took some business away from v- Visa when we popularized internet payments. But since we expanded the market for payments overall, we gave Visa far more business than we took. 
So he says, yeah, as you craft a plan to expand to adjacent markets, don't disrupt. Avoid competition as much as possible. Okay, should I close off that chapter? Yeah. You may. So it says there, um, it's much better to be the last mover, that is to make the, large, the last great development in a specific market and enjoy years or even decades of monopoly profits. The way to do that is to dominate a small niche and scale up from there towards your ambitious long-term vision. Um, yeah, I think it's a great way of ending that, that section off. Okay, should we go through the lottery ticket one? I think yeah. we still have a bit to go, but we can maybe I think run through a bit, a bit faster. Faster, yeah. No, cool. Okay, so you are not a lottery ticket. So this is... This is the chapter where they talk about those four different aspects. Mm. And essentially, the the premise is people think it's about being lucky, lucky and yeah. chance. Mm. Um, but Teal is saying hundreds of people have started um, very valuable businesses. Um, and, lo- and lots of them have started multiple mm. multi-million dollar businesses. And if it's the case that it's just about like, luck, like, that wouldn't make sense. Yeah. Um, so there's definitely aspects of luck, but don't fall into the thought of it's like not it's always, just luck. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then he says there'd be a definite or the summary of it is be a definite optimist, have a good plan for the future and pursue it like you know it will happen. Mm. So this is the chapter that I confused with the nineteen ninety. Oh okay. Yeah, pardon okay. like it's nineteen ninety nine. Um yeah, I think um, the chapter goes on and it carries on to to give four different views: the indefinite pessimism, definite pessimism, um, definite optimism, and that. And he, he digs into each of those. But in summary, like we we often think in um, almost like an indefinite optimist way, like we hopeful Currently, about yeah. the future, but we kind of are. It's we like it's it's not definite and we're not sure about how things will pan out and stuff. Mm-hmm. But like, ah, oh, it's probably gonna get better. And what that causes is that we don't end up actually forcefully pursuing the change. Mm-hmm. We kind of just let it happen. We're expecting the change, but not actually being the change. Yeah, driving that change. Um, and I mean, the summary there's just we need to, f- instead of just like being like, it's going to happen, mm. we need to figure out how we can push for it and have that more optimistic um, view of, of driving that change. Mm. Um, yeah, th- this is the chapter where, so it's on page eight, uh, 79. Okay. This is where he talks about Steve Jobs and the design thing. So it says, yeah, it's true that every great op- entrepreneur is first and foremost a designer, but the most important lesson to learn from Jobs has nothing to do with aesthetics. The greatest thing Job designed was his business. Apple imagined and executed an, uh, a definite multi-year plan to create new products and distribute them effectively. Jobs saw that you can change the world through careful planning, not by listening to focus groups or feedbacks or copying others' success. Long-term planning is often undervalued by our indefinite short-term world. So, yeah. 
have a plan, mm. even if it's a bad one. I mean, if you think about it, that still exists now. Every year, everyone looks forward to the Apple events. Mm. <laughs> you know, like, it's an... It's an, we just know that, you know, and I mean, if you really think about it, all the other tech companies sort of copied into that. I mean, I know Samsung also now has their own unveiling events. Mm. And so, yeah. And it's, I think Apple does quite well at building out technologies and subtly introducing them in ways that aren't obvious to consumers, but tie into future visions mm. that in retrospect you're like oh okay this is yeah, how those things mm. link so the iPod tying towards the iPhone mm. and making the like touchscreen interfaces and things like that tying into iPads and, and that and then even if you think about the new sensors and things that they've put in the newer iPhones mm. so some of those sensors like facial recognition sensors um uh I think it's they've got the distance um, sensors and things like that. Lidar. Exactly. And those kind of things tie into their future visions, like for the Apple Pro headsets and stuff. Their Apple Pro headset was like almost like orders of magnitude better than existing ones. And it's because they're integrating all of these things together so well. But they've been working on them behind the scenes and putting it into iPhones and things mm. and then joining them together. It's like continuously testing stuff that isn't necessarily for that product, but for a future product. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and the last note that I have in that chapter is a startup is the largest endeavor over which you have definite mastery, which you can have definite mastery. You can have not just agency over your own life, but over a small and important part of the world. It begins by rejecting the unjust tyranny of chance. You're not, you're not just a lottery ticket. I think some of the stuff, that he says in the book makes me feel like oh, I want to <laughs> create something. Yeah. You know, yeah. Mm-hmm. cause he's like, you can have agency um, and contribute a small and important thing to the world, mm. which is just cool. Okay. Following the money chapter seven. Mm. So this one is just about the power law and the value of monopolies. Um, yeah. We, we talks about, um, the difference we we think that things sort of I guess linearly increase mm. over time but often what happens in monopolies is like it's very slow start in the beginning and then bam all of a sudden it's like exponential and you might also <clears throat> take a dip so it's actually you might experience some losses before you actually have that turnaround yeah, especially in the technology world. Mm-hmm. Um, so he says here, so page 86, that the biggest secret, because he's in venture capital, yeah. so in basically giving other companies money, like investing in them at the early stages. So he says the biggest secret in venture capital is that the best investment in successful in a successful funds equals or outperforms the entire rest of the fund combined. Mm-hmm. So, it's that 
principle. I'm sure that there was another book that touched on this as well, which is that... By the philosophy of money, what's it? It could be, yeah. Actually, you might be right about that. Because the idea is when you think about, um, like if you have a a fund where you're investing in different properties or different companies or whatever, you would think that, okay, well, like this one will give a bit of money, that Mm. one will give a bit of money, but one is not going to like ridiculously Mm. um, um, outvalue any of the other ones. But he's saying that actually most of the time what ends up happening is that it's one or two True, companies that, that make, make money the massive bulk mm. of all of the change in the world mm. the money the etc um and so you have to kind of when you're wanting to start um something you need to try and or if you're wanting to make money from uh, investing in companies and things like that, you need to look out for those uh, companies that you can be like those that has a chance of doing like incredibly, Mm -hmm. incredibly well. I mean, I think there's one example where it gives about, I've forgotten what the company was, but the company made, I think it was like a 300% uh, profit or something. It was maybe 300 is even but it was like it performed really really well but the downside was um that was the smallest portion of um the venture capital majority of it went to a different company which didn't perform as well you know so Mm -hmm. there's also that uh, so you like you're saying you need to carefully pick the companies you're investing in and hope for the chances are not all of them will make lots of money, but there will be, like you say, one or two that really will perform well. Um, yeah. And and he ties that back as well to how we live our lives and we do things. Mm. So yeah. almost like lessons that we can learn from mm. the power law idea. Mm. If, you, if you're wanting to make like great strides in some some field or mm. something what you what you shouldn't do is diversify yeah. and just become like a jack of all trades mm. master of none mm. um what you should do is choose something specific and almost plow and focus mm. on that um i i don't i don't have any good answers for when mm. to do something like that because i think it is valuable when you're young to have a broad diverse set of interests and do Mm. lots of things Um, because having like a broad set of skills helps you with other things but at the same time if I look at myself I think that that and I was actually having this discussion with a a friend the other day I think that often I'll end up just doing lots of random things Mm -hmm. instead of focusing on specific things. And so I think one of the things that I'd like to do over time is try and say, okay, what is something that, and it doesn't, it almost just in some sense doesn't matter what it is, Mm. um, but just choosing something and focusing and pushing on that thing. Mm. It's not to say that you can't change at some point, but to really drive down, like if you want to become a really good software developer Mm. or something like that, or if you want to become a really good soccer player or something, 
at some point you're going to have to commit and try and be like, okay, this is the thing that I'm going to go for. Um, yeah. Okay. So something else here was on at the bottom of page 91. Um, it's about the idea of starting up a company or not. Mm -hmm. And especially in a book like this, you think like, okay, I have to, st this means starting a, com a company. <laughs> it's a startup. <laughs> um, but he says here, it doesn't matter what you do. You should focus relentlessly on something you're good at doing. But before that, you must think hard about whether it will be valuable in the f future. For the startup world, this means you should not necessarily start your own company, even if you're extraordinarily talented. Mm. If anything, too many people are starting their own companies today. People who understand the power law will hesitate more than others when it comes to founding a new venture. They know how tremendously successful they could become by joining the very best company while it's growing fast. So, and then he says, yeah, you could have 100% of the equity if you fully fund your own venture. But, but if, if it, it fails, fails <laughs> you have 100% of nothing. Owning just 0.01% of Google, by contrast, is incredibly valuable. More than $35 million at the time of this writing. Yeah, so identifying, like, if you, let's say you're looking for a new job and you are wanting to, you like the idea of being part of something new and starting up a, a company. Should you start up a company? Mm. And he's saying, ironically, because he's a startup founder mm. investor, Ironically, he's saying, maybe don't mm -hmm. start up the company because the power law is saying most of those companies are going to fail mm -hmm. and they're going to produce virtually like mm -hmm. negligible results. Mm -hmm. But some of the companies are going to do unbelievably well mm -hmm. and they will produce the vast majority of the results. So if you can identify the Go companies on. that are growing and you can see like, oh, okay, this is probably going to become something really mm. well and it's heading towards that trajectory. Mm. If you can jump in early enough, then... Chances are... Yeah. <laughs> you're, you're in for that 0.01% of Google, mm. which isn't a bad thing. So, yeah. I think it's a really cool take on it. Because, yeah, I've always thought you need to start something. But maybe you just need to be there. Just early need to enough. be associated with people that are studying something great. Yeah. <laughs> That's why I'm friends with you, James. <laughs> That's why I'm friends with you, you know? Um Okay. Should we go on to the secrets one? Yeah. Um so yeah, I mean there's not I think the general idea is yeah. just saying Monopolies usually have some secret. Mm -hmm. um, there's uh, some idea that they have, looking at that contrarian question, there's some idea that they have, which other people kind of neglect, but they are like, no, this thing is the way that it is. And they pursue that thing and focus on that thing. Um, and so this chapter touches on a few different aspects of that, like what, it, what makes a secret and a few different things. But... Um, I think an interesting point that he touches on is page 97, where he talks about four social trends that have conspired to root out our belief in secrets. Because obviously, I think a lot of people at the moment 
look at secrets and they're like, oh, there's not really mm. much new stuff mm. to be discovered in the world. So many things have already been there. Mm. I think we possibly as a society getting out of that slump because we're seeing like, oh, you know, there's there are actually quite a lot of different new aspects of things. Mm. But yeah, I think we're still in a little bit of a slump. And he says, yeah, there's four social trends that root out that belief. Um, the first is incrementalism. Mm. So we're taught that the right way to do things is to proceed a step at a time. So meaning that there's no like interesting Nothing things new. to be discovered. Yeah, we just have to better the stuff that already exists. Mm. Yeah. Second is risk aversion. So mm. people are scared of secrets because they're scared of being wrong, which is seriously unhelpful. Mm. And from so many aspects, because even if you think about learning, mm. If you want to learn something, you have to be willing to be wrong. Yeah, to find out it. You just have to sort of be like, okay, it's fine. Mm. I'm gonna, I'm gonna be wrong, and then mm. I'm gonna learn something. You're not gonna be perfect with everything from the start all the time. Um, then the third is complacency. Yeah, just being complacent. And the fourth is flatness. And he says, yeah, by flatness he means, as globalization advances, people perceive the world as one homogeneous, highly competitive marketplace mm. i.e the world is flat and uh, yeah i think those are good points to to try and tease out and say are those affecting me and the way that i think about whether there are any secrets and it's not mm. the nicest term but <laughs> are there any secrets that um have them been discovered essentially yeah or haven't been really invested mm. in or thought about or People sort of just like, ah, whatever. Um, yeah, and that last one as well, especially the flatness is is a dangerous one because it's, again, leans into that competitive idea. Yeah. I should say the the HP story was quite interesting. Yeah? Mm. Like, I was like, wow. Like, you know, to turn from like a pioneer in their field, you know, like uh, printers and whatnot and all the other things are sort of invented to kind of virtually be non-existent now, you know, yeah. it's like crazy to, to, to think that their market value at the moment is way less than when they started off. That's just like scary, you know. Yeah. Um, but again, reason being is because the people running it decided against inventing stuff <laughs> that's like in a nutshell you know because yeah. it's like no we don't have to look anymore we need to service things that are already there and you're like why <laughs> you know i i think it's a really like you say it's a really good point because <laughs> in that hp example mm. they to clarify what you were saying now the board of directors um, there was a guy, a guy who was yeah. like, well, we need to start looking at new things new thing, and we need yeah. to start um, focusing on on creating value and stuff like that. And then, and like innovating. And then the board is like, no, that's not our specialty. Mm. What we, our specialty is, and our, we need to focus on just keeping things going. It going? Um, and making just general decisions, mm. like should we do this and should we do that? And like just general day-to-day decisions. Mm. And then... Essentially, this, the the point that Teal and them are making is just to say, you if you do that, your business is going to crumble in yeah. the long run. Hmm. And then he shows that by showing how HP's 
um, business has just decreased mm, in value over time. Mm, mm. I don't know how well they're doing now, but mm. like from going from a massive company to slowly shrinking mm. over time. I mean, if you really think about it, there was a time when everyone had an HP laptop or something, and mm. now it's like. I don't know. I feel like at some point HP was bigger than Dell. Yeah, I also, <laughs> I also feel like it was fairly big, and now it's like, now it's like non-existent yeah. because I'm like trying to think when last did I see a Dell laptop? Yeah, no HP laptop. Sorry. Yeah, it is crazy. Mm. Okay, should we look at the foundations chapter? Yeah. Um, the teal law is quite funny. So apparently teal. Often, so often, like talks about this with his friends that they came up with this law and they call it the Teal Law. He says a startup messed up at its foundation cannot be fixed. Mm. Obviously, in summary, foundations are very important. Yeah, and so as a founder, you need to try and make sure that you get things right. Um, you can't build on a flawed foundation, as he puts it. Um, yeah, uh, um, I think with that um, in this section. <laughs> the interesting part was the DMV story. And I mean, I live in this country. I'm not from here, but it just kind of reminds me on how people complain about the different departments of the mm. like I mean home affairs and the traffic department. And I felt like it was exactly that. That uh by virtue um the owners of this thing is the public or the taxpayers, but then when they go f- to kind of utilize these services to get the worst experience because there's that one person that can decide whether to give you either the best service or the worst, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. But like I said, in essence, you're the ones that are supposed to be important in, in air quotes. But, you know, you find someone who deems their job more important than who you are and can either make your experience pleasurable or hell. Yeah. <laughs> I'm trying to remember, I know that that's in this chapter, but I'm mm. trying to remember how it ties to the foundations idea. No, so it, it's about, remember how it breaks up on how the different aspects of um, of a company per se, where you have, I want to say the stakeholders, but yeah, different groups, which is ownership, uh, possession, and control, where the owners are essentially the people that um, own the companies. Position is the people that um, operate the day-to-day running, so your managers and stuff, and then control is usually the board. They, they make the decision, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. So essentially, it's then seen as, as some sort of hierarchy where the owner is the most important, and, and you uh, know, yeah. uh, and then if you look at how governments are structured, taxpayers because they're the ones that fund the departments and are using that structure of owners um in a democracy the technically the people are the owners the owners yeah mm. so if but the then in reality to, in reality they need to utilize this and you'd think that since you're the owner you're supposed to get the best treatment so if you go to a department the opposite is actually true you can't have the, good service, but at the same time, it's sort of someone dictates how that experience would be mm. for you, you know. So in essence, like being an owner in that system kind of is pointless, if you may say. Yeah, Not pointless, but you you expect the owner to be treated well, but 
in reality, that's not what happens. Hmm. Hmm. But the, and that's because of. I think he was saying it's because of the alignment issue. Right? Yeah. Yes. So you can't in a government or in like a big thing like that. It's very difficult to mm. align people towards the same goals, mm. and so you have this sort of disruption in terms of who's doing what and mm. who has control and all of that kind of stuff. But if you set the foundations well, then your alignment can be a lot better, better yeah. and then you don't end up in that DMV mm. issue because your your everyone, everyone knows what what they're they doing do, exactly. Yeah. Like you were saying a lot earlier in the conversation, one of the things that Peter Teal did really well is he gave people specific roles, and he didn't even think that that was something that was going to be as valuable mm. valuable as it was. But it's a lesson that he learned. Like he, when you mm. want to do something like starting a company, giving people specific roles that aren't competing with each other mm. is really helpful in terms of getting alignment and having people all pushing towards some broader goal. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Um, I think another aspect that he said was interesting was the in in the foundations chapter was the paying yourself. If you, oh yes, 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 yes. Basically, saying <laughs> like if you come across a founder who's paying himself an exorbitant amount About, of money, I think he said more than hundred fifty thousand dollars a year. Yeah. Mm. If you come across someone who's paying themselves an exorbitant amount of money, then they probably aren't in it for the right reasons. There's a problem, yeah. 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 And so he's learned to just avoid those mm. kind of um, founding or those kind of companies mm. with those kind of founders. And then he ties it back to um, to equity in a company and working for a company. Mm. So he says, uh, often people find equity unattractive. It's not liquid like cash. Mm. It's tied to one specific company, and if that company doesn't succeed, it's worthless. Equity is a powerful tool for precise for a powerful tool precisely because of these limitations. Anyone who refer, who, refer, who prefers owning a part of the company as opposed to being paid in cash reveals a preference for the long term mm. and a commitment to increasing your company's value in the future. Equity can create perfect inse- can't create perfect incentives, but it's the best way for a founder to keep everyone in the in the company broadly aligned. Um, yeah. So it's I, I should, but uh, I know it's something that uh, how can I put this that I always struggle with. But I, I see he talks about it on how. Um, the flip side to that is um, being transparent about uh, how much equity different people have, mm. because apparently that can be a disaster. Yeah, he's saying don't, don't be transparent, don't be, which is also interesting. Which is interesting, you know how? I mean, he talks about how people that take industry thrive on transparency and all that, and yet here is like, okay, that's like one time where. You don't need to be, you know, which mm. is very interesting because I, I know, like, I mean, for, or oh, it's a known fact, whenever you get employed, the one thing in your contract is always never share how, how much you earn, which is, you know. It's, yeah, that's in South Africa. You know, it's 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 very interesting, you know. Um, 
Mm. But yeah, I think it makes sense. I think both sides of it make sense. Yeah, right? yeah. like the transparency with like how mm. much you earn and stuff makes sense because everyone then feels like they're equally treated because mm. they, in some sense, are equally mm. treated. But then what? Where Peel? I don't know what I keep on saying. <laughs> where Teal keeps on um, looking at is the competition thing. Mm. So Teal says competition's bad. Mm. And I think he maybe, while he's t- thinking through these ideas, has that in mind as well. Is if you are like comparing whether it's salaries or whether it's um, uh, equity and those kind of things, if you're comparing those kind of things, you probably aren't mm. doing it in a healthy way mm. because that doesn't, as long as you, uh, what I like to say to people is as long as you feel like you are being paid fairly, then don't worry about what other people are being mm. paid. For now, you might be paid a lot less or a lot more mm-hmm. and that might change drastically in the future. But if you're being paid fairly, I think that's, that's what you... If you're being paid more than fairly, then that's great. So, yeah, yeah, um, yes, yes. But, or, I mean, it can also be dangerous because it can also be that you're taking all the money and then you're in the CEO mm. position or the, the not good CEO position. But if you are being paid fairly um, and there's enough money to go around and stuff, then it's fine. Mm. Don't worry about the competition yeah, yeah. side of things. Mm. Just focus on doing the stuff that you're doing well. Mm. If you focus on the earning money side of things... Then you're there for the wrong reason. <laughs> yeah. And you're probably going to end up doing worse overall. Mm. Um, yeah. The last comment I have about the founding thing is... Um, I like the way that it ends off the chapter. He ends off the chapter by talking about extending the founding idea so founding is normally classified as when you start something when you found it and he says here the most valuable kind of company maintains openness to invention that most that is most characteristic of beginnings this leads to a second less obvious understanding of founding it lasts or a founding lasts as long as the company is creating new things and it ends when the creation stops. If you get the founding moment right, you can do more than create a valuable company. You can steer its distant future towards the creation of new things instead of the stewardship of inherited success. You might even extend its founding indefinitely. Yeah, so I I like that idea of saying like you almost need to keep re-founding yourself or your company in order to stay relevant in the market. And then it goes back to that HP example. Mm. Like if you don't push on that innovation and genuinely invest in it, not just like superficially mm. we're, uh, we do innovation and stuff, but if you genuinely push for it and, and take risks of saying like, I'm going to try this and mm. it might not work out, then yeah, that's, it's very good. Mechanics of Mafia. Should we go on to that chapter? Yeah. Okay, so in a sense, I think this chapter is about company culture. Mm-hmm. It says the company culture doesn't exist apart from the company. No company has a culture. Every company is, is a culture. A culture. Mm. 
feel like it's maybe a little bit too technically. <laughs> like I still am very comfortable saying like that company has a specific culture. But I think I understand <laughs> what he's he's getting at. It's uh, you all should have seen his reaction. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I think it's I think he's trying to get at you it's not like a company is plucked out of the air and put into a company it just is that way like it the company <sighs> culture just arises out of the natural interactions and the way that people deal with things and I think that's why it's so hard to shape a culture yeah uh uh, uh. <laughs> Trying to like also process this. I feel like what just trying to put across is how, how can I put this? It's like you said, you cannot come in and sort of shape the company's culture, sort mm-hmm. of the people within the company, sort of dictate what the culture is. Yeah, that's a great way of putting it. Um, yeah. And that's why he's so keen on like saying hiring is vital. Yes. And he says don't outsource mm-hmm. hiring because you need the right people. You need people that are part of the culture to sort of be like, oh, we relate with you, you, mm-hmm. and you. Um, yeah. Yeah. I've got um, more to add, but uh, off. <laughs> <laughs> Contact me for more information. But then, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, um, we can um, we can look a little bit more into the the m- mechanics of mafia section. Mm-hmm. But e- effectively, it's about saying um, hire the right people, and you will develop that culture. Yeah, um, and the, he talks about as thinking about why would someone join your company as opposed to joining Google or Ooh. some other company like that where they can earn a ton more, assuming that they're really like good yeah. engineers or whatever it might be. Um, and so they can join something like Google. Why should they join yours? Ooh. And those com- those answers are company specific. And it's related to what is your mission and what is your team about? Um, and if you can't answer that... Um yeah <laughs> yeah he's, he says a little bit later like don't fight the perk war and do all those mm. kinds of things it's fine to give your company yeah i think what he's trying to say don't use the perks as the attractive factor exactly yeah. like those should sort of be a given um not even like i think no he's trying to imply that those are supposed to be there like okay that's kind of the bare minimum not bare minimum, but that's expected. But in addition to the to the perks, because you know, at the end of the day, it's like if there people are one up in each other, it's like it becomes a financial thing. But like it says, like you have to like I'll take it back to the alignment thing. You have to then align with the company's mission mm. for you to do well. So I'm not saying like. You've been attracted by the perks, et cetera, et cetera, is, is bad. All I'm saying is that that shouldn't be what convinces you to work for, to that, work yeah. for that company because, primarily. Yeah. I, I would go as far as to say that I think he would 
be fine with saying no perks is mm. all right. Mm. Like, I don't think he has it as an expectation. Mm. It's a nice thing, but but yeah, I, I wouldn't say that it's an expectation. Mm. But I hundred percent agree with you on like, and and he touches on that to say if if the thing that it makes the final choice is the perks. That person probably isn't the person. Mm. To, not probably. That person is not the person you should be hiring. Mm. If they're like, cool, I'm sold because the perks mm. are great. Then you should be like, okay, sorry. Mm. We've decided not to hire yeah, you. Yeah. <laughs> um, because then they will just go, if another company offers yeah, better perks, yeah, yeah. they will just jump ship. Mm. And that's not helpful. Mm. Yeah, it's just Like, I mean, in the past, I've always chatted to people and then that limbo of trying to move jobs and whatnot. And I always say if if pay is the only reason, then you do not have a good enough reason. Yeah. Like unless that's, you're really that's getting paid the, terribly. Yes, yes. Unless if you're you know paid sort of yeah. reasonable mm, amounts. Mm, mm, mm. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's it's a valid reason, but I always think it's always far greater. Especially like if you've been there okay if you've been there six months, yes. Mm. If you've been there two years, the chances are you can give a valid argument for them to um, increase your salary. Yeah, and unless if you can't maybe look at yourself. <laughs> yes, uh, unless you know. Yeah, like you said. But if that's your only reason after building a relationship with, like, at the end of the day, they're also human. Like the human aspect is there. They're not mm. robots and whatnot. That's what I'm saying. If you can give a valid reason to why you should get paid more, because I mean, most people don't even know why they want to get paid more. I believe, yeah. you know. But if you so really they can buy more stuff, yeah. But if you're able to put the point across of why you want to earn more, then fair. But I believe that in most cases, not the only reason why people move or should move. Yeah, you not know? the only reason. Why yeah, should move, yeah. 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 Um, the end of the chapter looks at the that idea that we've already discussed. Do one thing. So getting people to focus on one thing. He says there as a summary point. On the inside, every individual should be sharply distinguished by her work. Um, yeah. I think that's the majority of that chapter. Mm. The mechanics of mafia. So yeah, it was fairly short. Yeah. Have a good culture, and the culture is formed by. The people. The people. Um, yeah. Okay. So, if you build it, this is the next chapter. If you build it, will they come? So this goes back to that importance of sales. Yeah, thing. I think we we spoke about it quite a bit at the beginning. <laughs> yeah. 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 I mean, in summary, it's essentially a lot of people view sales as this artificial, silly nonsense, mm. um, but actually, uh, sales works. It works on the people who think it's silly nonsense. <laughs> like you, um, James. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> I'm being convinced that it's not. Uh, the reason I'm being convinced is because he's, I don't want to fall into this category that he says. He says, yeah, anyone who can't acknowledge that it's like, anyone who can't acknowledge the likely effect it has on themselves mm -hmm. is doubly deceived. So if you think that advertising doesn't does work, you, then you are doubly deceived. So I just want to be once deceived. <laughs> um, yeah, so 
he says here most people underrate its importance Ooh. and i think that's that's a good point and i think part of it is what he touches on later where he says it sales is a hidden thing Ooh. often um because most most products and most ideas and it's interesting ideas not just products Ooh. need to be sold yeah so i remember listening to a book a while back and being like oh wow like and it's it's almost a cringy thing to think about but there's also some helpful aspects to be straightforward and think through Ooh. it clearly that you are a product of some sort yeah. so if you if you and you you shouldn't again go and try and sell yourself and be like a snake oil salesman <laughs> but to try and realize that your the ideas that shape history and do things are often because of almost eccentric people as well that are able to capture the imagination of people so for example elon he's a really smart guy mm -hmm. and he is also able to capture the imagination of people which then allows people to it's almost like you passing on to use a term that dawkins would use it's like the meme idea when mm. you're passing on this thought mm. of like oh, okay this thing is possible or i want to dive into that idea with you and then you can build up a strong team around you but if you just like oh no i don't care about interacting with people i'm just going to do my own thing most likely like you're not going to get the traction. Even if you have a brilliant idea, oh. you're not going to get the traction that you th think. And he says here um, on page 129, academic ideas about history and English don't just sell themselves on their intellectual merits. Even the agenda of fundamental physics and the future path of cancer research are results of persuasion. So to try and be a persuasive person i think is not good but to realize that in order for an idea of yours if you genuinely think an idea is a valuable and important idea oh. don't be afraid of trying to convince oh. others that that idea is important and valuable oh. um, don't do it just for the sake of being an impressive person or anything but realize that you have to you have to be able to sell your ideas. Um, yeah. It, I mean, it's funny, even in the world of academics, you think about the proposals that you write oh, yeah. to be able to get research funds and oh. things. You can't just write like, this is exactly what I'm going to do, blah, blah, blah. You have to kind of sell it. Sell it, yes. Which yeah. is weird. Like, it's crazy. Because mm. you're like, no, it should be completely objective. Mm. But, no. That's not how it works. Yeah, true. True. So, I really blabbed on about sales. <laughs> which is for someone who, for me. For someone who thinks I've uh, never fallen for the sales trap. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, yeah. Hopefully, I've sold everyone else on it. I probably didn't do a good job. Because, yeah. But sales, selling yourself ideas just it is really cringy <laughs> um so i don't know if you want to look at the how to sell a product section 
Um, so on page 130, oh. superior sales and distributions by itself can create a monopoly, even with no product differentiation. The converse is not true. No matter how strong your product, even if it easily fits into already established habits, and anyone who tries it likes it immediately, it won't sell um, or it won't work unless you support it with a strong distribution plan, which is crazy to think. Mm. Like you can have a brilliant idea and it fails and someone else can have a very average idea, but they market it really well and do really well. Mm. That is the world we live in. Yeah. Don't be doubly <laughs> deceived. <laughs> um, so yeah, once you, it goes back to that starting small. If you start small, then over time you build up like Jack's Bagels, you know, they built up over time and then they got some almost, you can think of it like reference customers. Mm. Um, they got some people who liked the product and things like that. And then they realized, okay, we can slowly expand mm. over time. And that's the way to, to go about it. I mean, another example would be probably, if you look at franchise, they probably started off as one entity and then then grew to the point where instead of just selling whatever product it is that range of shop sells, they're actually selling the shops to people. Mm. So I think that scale is exactly what probably is to, if it's just one person, like some simple ads and then then those source people that, or yourself now going to people, approaching people. Yeah. To be like, okay, this is what I want to sell to you. So, yeah. Yeah, and it's crazy because, um, like, Willie's is like that as well, where you, it, the shop is, is this thing mm. that you like, Willie's. Yeah. Um, yeah, and they've done a really good job. Mm. Um, okay, lastly is selling to non-customers. So you need to sell your product to more than just the customers. You must also sell the company to employees and oh. investors. So, and he says, yeah, which is a clever thing. There's the human resources version of the lie that great products sell themselves. And that lie is companies. The, this company is so good that people will be clamoring to join it. Um, and that's just not true. Oh. Unfortunately, you have to sell it. We go on to the next one, man yep. and machine. I think in this chapter, it's essentially saying, um, yeah, there's a, there's a summary uh, statement here. The most valuable businesses of the coming decades will be built by entrepreneurs who seek to empower people rather than try to make them obsolete. Yep. So rather than sort of building machines to replace people, humans, yeah. building machines to... Help. Help. Mm. Yeah. I think that's a concept throughout that chapter. Yeah. It's just to say, um, don't look at machines as threats. Uh, I mean, there's always that chat where, or chat GPT, whether it's going to replace people's jobs and whatnot. Uh, I think <laughs> it might, at first glance, it might seem so, but I think that human aspect is still needed to a great part you know um, yeah and over time as it replaces more things mm, and undoubtedly it, it will mm, but it leaves humans to do things that no world 
better. Yeah. You know, I mean, the one example, which if you actually think about it, it's like AI systems fail to do um, what a four-year-old do. Like, oh, let, let me rephrase that. Machine learning models fail to do what a four-year-old can four year old can do with hundred percent certainty, you know, where it talks about how models can only identify cats with a seventy five percent Oh, they need accuracy. basically much more training data yeah. in order to be able to identify you know cats in an image. Yeah, which you know, a four year old can do. So mm. it's like if you think about that, it's like Yes, you can view them as a threat, but for the most part, it's like there's two certain aspects that, or human interaction that would be needed, you know, for a long time to come. And I I think that's changing over time Mm. as well, though. Um, Which, so some of the points that he makes here that I think are even outdated, which is funny. Yes, yes, yes. But... I think still that's fine mm. because even let's say in a few years time and already um, cats can be identified on a lot less mm. training data, but even, even if it replaces humans in terms of the amount of exposure that's mm. needed for a model to gain sufficient mm. um, ability, then there's still going to be aspects that you can tie human and machine workings. Again, that's what I'm saying. Like they might eliminate some aspects, but there's still, yeah, there's still enough, you know, that still needs human integration. I mean, for instance, like something as mundane as connected to your parcels, like, you know, that's something that still needs, Human interaction. Except for the, <laughs> what's it, Roomba or whatever, those vacuum robots. I mean, it vacuum, but it does apply itself. It does. You, you, it does. No, but initial setup. Themselves. No, yeah, they yeah, dock okay. themselves, yeah. yes. But I mean, connecting them to the power source and setting them up, like connecting them to the network and all that kind yeah. of stuff, that still needs some sort of human interaction. It's like, true, they, yeah. they don't... That's what I'm getting at. At some point, it'll change, you know. They'll walk into the door. Please, let me be in my shell. (laughs) (laughs) I want to be fine. Let me be be in my shell. Uh, But yeah, yeah, on that, there's still some level of human interaction that's still needed. Yeah. Is what I'm getting at. Um, Again, like I said, don't treat it completely as a threat, but rather something to make you better. Yeah. Mm. I think it goes back to that definite optimism idea. Like, okay, you can have this vision of like uh, robots taking over and humans having nothing to do and stuff. And I think humans are naturally curious and like to explore things. Mm. And potentially you get super AI that is, um, or super intelligence that, is able to do everything that humans can do and better. And I mean, robots, the Boston Dynamics robots and stuff are already really impressive in terms of physically what they can do. And so those things combining over 10 years, 20 years, it's maybe maybe 30 to 50 years, doesn't really matter what the time frame is because we can guess and then be wrong and maybe sooner, maybe later. But regardless of what it turns out to be, even if... um, even if that super intelligence is better than us in every aspect, mm. 
it's pointless to be like, oh, you know, okay, what's the point of, oh. of life anymore? Um, and it's, you, you almost need to have that definite optimism that there can be a way for humans and machines to work together for beneficial oh. things. Oh. Um, and I guess my semi-contrarian idea uh, is that a lot of people are very pessimistic towards how like machines will take over and what happens when they're more intelligent Ooh. than us and stuff and will they squash us because we like ants and things like that. It does make me reflect on when I kill an ant pretty much every time <laughs> and there's a lot of ants in the world. Um, but when you when you think about intelligence, it seems like intelligence systems tend towards um, the good. And so if, if we get a super intelligent system, I have high hopes that because of the way that it works, it will be both good and tend towards the truth because of its intelligence. Um, and so whereas often people are worried about like, oh, you know, ChatGPT and fake, um, producing fake this and that oh. and not knowing what's true and not and all of that kind of stuff. Whereas I tend towards more thinking that the more it starts to learn and um, improve, the better it will get and the more empathetic it will oh. get because it seems to me like the more and assist more something is intelligent the more empathetic uh -huh. it is um and also the more it tends to be able to evaluate whether something is true or not because once you get to a certain point if you understand something well enough then it's very difficult and the example that i like to use here is like the flat earth example uh -huh. there's a lot of people that still believe that the earth is flat but for the people who have been like, oh, okay, the earth isn't flat because of all of these oh. different aspects. It almost doesn't matter how much someone tries to convince them that it is flat. You have enough information to oh. be able to say, it's no, not. like, I know that it's not. I know that one plus one is two, oh. assuming no. you're using a base 10 system and a bunch of different things. Um, <laughs> I know that one plus one is two. And so you have enough information to be able to, no ma matter how much sort of rubbish there Ooh. is, you can say, okay, no, yeah. that's actually what I believe to be true. Anyway, yeah. So my semi-contrarian idea, I think a lot of people would still agree <laughs> with it. So I don't think it's that contrary. Um, at the end of the chapter, they say here, um, as we find new ways to use computers, they won't just get better at the kinds of things people already do. They'll help us to do what was previously unimaginable. Okay, the last two chapters. Seeing green, that's the thing that we were trying to remember. Yeah. Okay, so should we look at those questions? Do you want to go through those seven things quick? Yeah. On page, um, what's it, 154? It's also one five three. <clears throat> okay. Cool. So yeah, I think the first question there is the engineering question. Let, maybe let's just say uh, I'll let you read through them now. Oh, okay. But it's the seven questions that every business must answer. Mm. Um, yeah. Startups. Um, yeah. 
Um, yeah, sorry, I just dove in there. <laughs> but yeah, so the first question is the engineering question. Um, can you create breakthrough technology instead of incremental improvements? Uh, the second is the timing question. Is now the right time to start your particular business? Third is the monopoly question. Are you starting with a big share of, of a small market? And then the people question, do you have the right team? Number five is the distribution question. Do you have a way to not just create but deliver your product? And then the durability question, will your market position be defensible 10 and 20 years into the future? And then the secret question, um, which is, have you identified a unique opportunity that others don't see? So that's, yeah. those are the seven questions. Yeah, yeah I, I think a lot of them kind of speak for themselves and and like people would need to sort of read through them again and mm-hmm. sort of really think through them and answer them. But I think they're very helpful questions to to figure out if you are on the right track and if you can answer all of them like yes, like we have clear ideas about this and that, then I think you're in a good path. Mm. But there are some like caveats to say don't trick yourself. So one of those is um, for that monopoly question, exaggerating your own uniqueness mm. is one way to botch mm. the monopoly question is what they mm. say. Um, and we've discussed that quite mm. a bit. I should say like uh, most of these questions actually map onto um, the chapters, yeah. the ideas that have been discussed through the different chapters. Yeah. Um, I like the timing one as well. Because people don't realize how important timing is. Often. Yeah, yeah. Like if you think about ideas, even just like general ideas in history, um, I, over the last few years, I've realized how important it is mm. for people to be at the right time, at the right place. Mm. Um, when they come up with ideas, like Einstein's ideas couldn't have come uh, without the prior stuff. Mm. Um, and if you look at the creation of calculus and things like that, like founded by two different people at the same time, mm. roughly. And the reason for that is because of a bunch of prior mm. things that almost needed mm. to happen in order for that moment in history to take place. Yeah. Um, there was the... Um, let me see here. So... So just before you go, I just want to say that that timing question um, can also answer a question that you had earlier or something we touched on that. Maybe that's another thing what makes other st- like st- studying certain restaurants successful or not. Because it might just be that at that point in time, let's say you, you start a soup shop in summer, <laughs> like there's no way that would be successful, you know. But if you start it in winter and then think of, then from you studying that, then ask yourself the durability question. Like, okay, you, you then realize, okay, this cannot be viable in winter. Let me think of what I should make in summer. Keep founding, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Uh, so I, f- I feel like timing also has. Uh, yeah. Um. Yeah, big growing in that um, yeah yeah then um, it's the durability thing as well so that durability question mm. um, and how 
every entrepreneur should plan to be the last mover in the particular market. Mm -hmm. And that starts with asking yourself, what the what would the world look like 10 to 20 years, years from, from now? now? And how will my business plan fit mm -hmm. in? So I think that on a smaller scale, that super example is a good one. Mm -hmm. And on a longer scale, the HP example mm -hmm. is a good one. How do you think about the future? Mm -hmm. Then there's the distribution one as well, which I, I liked. It's like a very straightforward comment, but selling and delivering a product is at least as important as the product mm. itself, which is where we failed back in the day. Mm. And the phone stand thing is not like it was ever going to be some revolutionary um, thing, but we could have done a lot better than we did had we been better at sales mm. and distribution. Um, and that's difficult, as um, we found out. Yeah, and I think none of us were salespeople. Yeah, and also none of us were able to mass produce it. Like, mm. we went to a few places to try and figure out the mass production stuff. Mm. But, like, it's very expensive and it's very time-consuming. Mm. Um, obviously, it gets easier if you're in a specific industry and you have experience. But, but yeah, it's not a trivial thing. And then, yeah, great companies have secret. Um, towards the end of the the um, the chapter, it says there, an entrepreneur can't benefit from the macro scale unless his own plans begin at the micro scale. So again, that's that small startup idea. Oh. And then it says on one seven one, the macro need for energy solutions is still real because remember this whole chapter is framed in the seeing green so this whole chapter was everyone is thinking it's a gold rush mm. the solar energy and all green energy stuff um and they ended up basically just competing a bunch of them ended up competing themselves to to their end to demise um oh. and then the the reality is that the they're saying yeah the macro need for energy solutions is still real but a valuable business must start by finding a niche and dominating a small market. Facebook started as a service for just one university campus before it spread to other schools and then the entire world. Paradoxically, the challenge for entrepreneurs who will create the Energy 2.0 um, revolution, I guess, is to think small. Yeah, thinking small. Okay, then there's the founder's paradox. Mm -hmm. I don't think we need to dig into that too much. It's essentially, um, they say uh, the chapter is about why it's more powerful, but at the same time more dangerous for a company to be led by a distinctive individual um, rather than an interchangeable manager. And then it just talks about the distribution of traits. Oh. So um, norm, uh, if you picture a normal distribution, then... Um, often like your average person is going to fall within the middle of weak, poor, um, disagreeable, uh, infamous villain, those kinds of traits and strong, charismatic, insider, rich, hero, famous. Um, so those are the two extremes and most people fall somewhere in the middle. Oh. Not super poor, not super rich. Uh, although, yeah, I mean arguable because yeah. I think there's a lot of people that are very poor but stick with the, <laughs> the, the general thought Ooh. so most people aren't super um, uh, dumb but also most people aren't super smart etc 
And what happens is with founders, the what he calls the founders paradox is that it's founders are often on an inverse um, normal distribution. So they are paradoxically often both very dumb and very Ooh, smart, smart and very poor and very rich. rich because the poor rich example is because founders, um, they're rich because they have these very... Well, that's true, I guess, but rich in the sense that they own this massive company, but poor in the sense that they don't actually have the cash. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. They're rich and they have the idea to get the business running, but don't have the money to back it. Yeah, but also even if you've got a successful business, Mm. it's like you have all of this money. Like Elon, he's the richest, Mm. one of the richest people in the world, if not the richest. But he doesn't actually have the money. Mm. Like he has to sell shares mm. in order to get that money. It's not real physical cash. And there's lots of these weird paradoxes mm. um, being both very agreeable and charismatic, but also being very disagreeable. Mm. And most people kind of fall in between, but founders mm. often fall on the extremes. Um, yeah, he goes through a bunch of different founders and, and things. Mm. Um he ends off there, founders are important not because they are the ones whose work has value, but rather because a great founder can bring the best work out of everybody at his company. Um, and then I like this thing as well, the last part of that founder's chapter. To believe in yourself, to believe yourself invested with divine sufficiency is not the mark of a strong individual, but a person who has mistaken the crowd's worship for jeering or or jeering for some form of truth. The single greatest danger for a founder is to become so certain of his own myth that he loses his mind. And then this is the interesting part. But an equally insidious danger is for every business to lose all sense of myth and mistake disenchantment for wisdom. So the reason why I like that is because what it's saying is mistaking disenchantment for wisdom. So we can think we're being so rational about the way that we do things and approach things that we actually lose that sense of um, definite optimism. But if we, and that's the very dangerous position to be in because if we don't have that belief like, okay, we can actually do this crazy thing, like that sort of idea that there is, this myth might actually be real, mm. then um, we might mistake disenchantment for wisdom. Okay. I don't know if you want to add anything there for the founders thing, but... No, I, I think I barely got to that chapter. Cool. <laughs> I just started it, but yeah. So then... We can do the last chapter, which is stagnation or singularity. Um, and the chapter basically is looking at the different points that a philosopher, Nick Bostrom, describes, which there's four possible patterns for humanity's future. So the four, and they give nice little graphs here. Oh. Um, but the four different ones are recurrent collapse. So basically the idea of things doing well and then failing and things doing well and then failing. So you can almost think about it as like prosperity and war or um, creation and then losing all of that. Like what knowledge the Egyptians and stuff had is somewhat lost to us and all of this kind of 
thing. And that's the recurrent collapse idea. So you can think of it almost like, for those of you who did physics and maths and that, you can think of it like a sine wave. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, Up and down, up and down. Then the alternative, that's the first one. Alternative is plateau, then which is basically we keep on getting better and better and then just sort of taper off and then it's just like everything carries on the same. Then the third one is extinction. So keep on getting better and better, better. It's kind of like this exponentially getting better. And then all of a sudden, bam, everything is gone because we kill ourselves. Um, And then the fourth is just take off. It's basically like similar to the extinction graph, but it's without the extinction. (laughs) So he discusses those different ones and he says, look, recurrent collapse is unlikely because there's so much knowledge and it's so globally distributed that it's unlikely that we will lose that knowledge. Um, yeah, so that for that reason, most likely the recurrent collapse is not going to happen. Plateau is possible, but also unlikely just because of technology mm. and, and all of that kind of stuff and increasing. Um, but um, he says here... When you add competition to uh, consume scarce resources, it's hard to see how global plateau could last. How a global plateau could last indefinitely, without new technology to relieve competitive competitive pressures, stagnation is likely to erupt into conflict. In the case of conflict on a global scale, stagnation collapses into extinction. So he basically is saying that. Plateau is unlikely because of technology and competition. And if you, if technology doesn't improve things and basically people have to fight it out, that leads to, to extinction. extinction. So plateau is unlikely. Extinction is possible. Um, but he says there that the fourth scenario that's left is the one in which we create new technology to make a much better future. So that's Teal's belief in new technology being a very powerful source of prosperity, I guess. And yeah, I think it makes sense. Um, So he ends off there in this chapter saying, our task today is to find singular ways to create new things that will make the future not just different, but better to go from zero to one. One. Yeah. I don't know if you have any closing thoughts, Peter. No, that's um, the importance of creation, I think. And um, I think how to view competition differently. Mm. And um, I think it's changed my definition of monopoly. I think uh, yeah. I think we spoke about this briefly on how monopoly is always seen as, as bad. Um, mm. But kind of describe if it's a monopoly that's outright buying out company to be the only people in the, uh, uh, on the market, then yes, that's terrible. But monopoly in the sense of from the start, you create something that's unique and new and kind of better some sort of area. Uh, I think, yeah, it's a good thing. And I think we should all strive to create. Yeah. You know, I think... Um, yeah, I think we all should have that creative side. I think it's it's a very sort of side to have. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think for me as well, 
it's changed the way that I think about monopoly mm. and it's changed the way that I think about a few different things. Mm. Um, the importance of trying to pursue something specifically mm. rather than just diversely doing lots Do of everything. Things. Yeah. Not that I think that doing the diverse thing is terrible. It's just, you will most likely make more progress pursuing something specific. Um, and then also the way that founding is can be seen as a singular event but it uh, almost a nicer way at least i think is that second way of viewing founding where it's about continuously recreating or sorry creating new things and continuously Ooh. being innovative and not falling into that hp trap Ooh. which hopefully hp makes its way out of. <laughs> um and yeah so if if we think like that, then I think we will be able to be a lot more creative and we'll push and we'll have that um, definite optimism, despite the fact that there are issues in the world and things. Mm. If we don't have that definite optimism and we don't just push for it and um, act as if it really can be done, mm. whatever that is, um, then we won't we won't actually make it a reality. Mm. Whereas if we do push ourselves beyond, if we almost believe a little bit in that myth, mm. then we will be able to create things that are much more incredible than we thought was possible. And so it's shifted that perception of incremental progress as the only possible um, solution, which I think is really powerful. Mm. And I think incremental progress is still really good. And I think it's something to continuously strive on mm. looking to that atomic habits thing as well yeah. of saying like make small improvements every day. Mm. Um, but, but that zero to one idea is already really helpful. Mm. And I think it's a really powerful idea. Um, yeah. So it's been a really good book. Yeah. Highly recommend. Um, yeah. Cool. Thanks, James. Thanks, Peter. You'll be a married man on our next one. Yeah, <laughs> crazy. Exciting times. Cool. Look forward to it. Cool. Cheers. Cheers. Man. Thanks.